Hello, Tumble listeners. Marshall here. Lindsay and I are going to be taking this week off for Thanksgiving, where we'll be spending this week with family, eating food, watching American football, and sharing all of our favorite facts about dinosaur poop. I hope all of you who celebrate will be doing something similar. Since the Thanksgiving holiday is all about being thankful for what you have, we thought this would be a good opportunity to share a bunch of episodes about scientists who worked hard to make the world a better place than they found it. You'll hear about someone who used statistics to help kids escape poverty, another person who uses engineering skills to develop a better wheelchair after he became disabled, and two other people who are trying to find new solutions to the problems of plastic trash. We'll get to those episodes in just a minute, right after this. Hello there, Tumble listeners. Are you a teacher who works with kids in grades three through five? Or do you know a teacher who works with kids in grades three through five? I kind of hope you do. If so, we really need your help. We're working on a grant-supported project that's studying the use of podcasts in elementary classrooms, and we need a group of teachers to advise us during this school year. There's a small stipend for it as well. If you're interested, there's a link to apply in our episode description, or you can go to bit.ly slash tumbleteachers. Again, that's bit.ly slash tumbleteachers. Thanks. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall, and this is Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we'll meet a scientist who helps children. I feel like scientists help children by teaching them cool things about the way the world works. And dinosaurs. Don't forget dinosaurs. But Teresa Castro is a scientist who spent her life using science to make kids' lives better. Today, we'll follow her journey starting from when she was a curious kid with a big, tough question. We'll hear Teresa's story just after this. Before we start, I want to uh, address the elephant in the room, which is your voice. <laughs> I mean, it's been worse. <laughs> it's a little ragged right now. Tra-la-la-la, here I am, I'm sick. <laughs> the nice thing is I can sing much lower than I usually do. Old man river, that old Let's get started with the show. <laughs> Charita Castro is American, but being a Filipina is a big part of her life. My mom and dad are from the Philippines, and my brother and I had a very happy childhood being raised in a big Filipino family with parents, aunties, and uncles and cousins. Charita's dad was in the U.S. Navy, and her family lived outside of the U.S. during her childhood. I am a military brat, a Navy brat, and we lived in Japan for about 10 years. Living in Japan seems pretty cool. Yeah, and Charita's family was really happy there because Japan is very close to the Philippines. They spent every summer and winter vacation with their Filipino family. So I spent quite a bit of time in the Philippines as a child going back and forth. And that's where Charita saw something she would never forget and started her journey into science. So when I was in the Philippines, uh, I would go out with my mom. She would take me to see her favorite places. Charita's mom took her to a big, beautiful park to go on walks and visited their favorite restaurants and shops. Charita loved being with her mom and seeing everything that was special to her. But Charita didn't just see the places. She saw the people who were there, too. She noticed that there were many kids her age, but they weren't enjoying the day with their parents. 
And I would see children working on the streets. These children were working to support their families. And so I would either see children alone or in packs, working to sell flowers, water, food, or just asking for money. Seeing these children made Charita confused. She wondered why they weren't with their parents or in school. She wondered, how come those children don't have what I have? Charita would spend many, many years trying to answer that question. I suspect that there's no easy answer to that. It's not like exactly two plus two. It's a hard question, but Charita's parents wanted her to ask it. My mom came from a really urban, poor neighborhood. My dad was raised in the countryside. And they wanted us to see what poverty looks like. What does it mean to be poor and not have running water? Or maybe not even having shoes and walking barefoot. So why did Charita's parents want her to see that? Because that was the life that they had come from. I mean, my mom tells me a story of when she reflects back on her life now, that there were times that she didn't have a toothbrush to brush her teeth and she didn't have shoes or even bakya. Bakya in Tagalog is like a wooden slipper to go to school. Charita's mom worked hard to go to school and finish college, but not all of her siblings were so lucky. Some of my aunties and uncles had to drop out. They worked on the side of the railroad selling food, newspapers. And, you know, even my father, who comes from a rural area, he also had to work. He sold bread in the morning. So Charita's parents really had to work, like not just making the bed and sweeping the floor and doing chores around the house. Right. So growing up, they weren't too different from the children that Charita had seen on the street. And they wanted to instill in us a sense of not just taking things for granted, but being able to give back to others in life. That's a big lesson. It was an important lesson. And Charita got it in many ways. Like this one time when she was in kindergarten and her mom came to have school lunch with her. And I was so excited that I was going to eat lunch with my mom. Charita was so excited to sit with her mom in the cafeteria. And then we had these juice boxes. And I just love these triangle juice boxes. And my mom had one. And so I was like, oh, I get to have two juice boxes. And she looked at me and she said, well, your classmate doesn't have a juice box. So you should give that one to her. At first, Charita felt bad for wanting more than she already had. But then she saw the lesson in it. I realized what my mom also was doing in that moment was teaching me to share and to be kind to others who didn't have much. And I think that's something that I have kept with me in thinking about a profession and being in a helping profession and using science to help others. Sometimes big lessons come in triangle juice box packages. <laughs> Charita knew then that she wanted to help people who had less than her. That's great, but there are lots of ways to help people. So why did she decide to use science to help people? That's a good question. When she was a kindergartner, Charita didn't know that science could help people. She had much further to go on her journey of science discovery. And first, she had to go back to the U.S., my brother and I were 14 and 15 years old when we moved to Jacksonville, Florida. 
after not living in the United States for all that time. It was a rough landing in the U.S. They'd been living in Japan with teachers and other students who were Asian like them. In Florida, they stuck out. Jarita's brother had a particularly hard time. And I witnessed the impact racism could have on a child and family. Charita's brother was bullied because he was Asian. It turned him and their whole family upside down. Charita also had trouble making new friends. She was shy. She worried whether or not people liked her. But then also, because my brother was struggling so much, I just wanted to do well for my parents so that they didn't have to worry about another child. Charita put everything into school. Luckily, she found teachers that she loved. When I was going through high school, I had the best math and science teachers. These teachers even paid for Charita to attend a science camp during the summer. And that kind of started my journey into the field of science. Charita began to see science as something she could do for a living, but she didn't know how it could help people. That discovery came when she was in college and took a psychology class. It was a class studying what teenagers go through, especially girls. So psychology is the study of the mind and behavior, right? Yeah, so this class was studying what teenagers feel. For Charita, the class felt like therapy. The textbook was telling her the story of her own life. I remember being in my dorm room just reading things over and over again, whether it meant feelings of being sad, feelings of being insecure, feelings of wanting to belong and have friends, all of that. Charita had felt all these things when she was a girl. Now she realized other girls had felt them too. Science was a way to understand those feelings and discover how to help people feel better. I felt less alone, and that's when I decided that I wanted to go into the social science research fields in order to make others feel less alone. And that's how Charita discovered how to use science to help people. Her big eureka moment. But um, what are the social science research fields? Could I go there and, like, run around in them? No, you can't. <laughs> because a research field isn't a physical field. It is a way to talk about a type of research. And social scientists study people, what they do or what they think and why. When I think about social science, it's really quite a broad field. And for me, it's about using data to help other people. In her textbook, Charita saw how experiences and feelings could be translated into numbers to understand people's problems in a much bigger way. You realize that these are objective things that can be studied to help people be the best that they can be for themselves, but also to help people be the best they can be to each other and for humanity. So by studying people, you can figure out ways to make things better for everyone. That's the vision. There are a lot of things you can study about people to improve their lives. But Charita came back to that question that she had asked as a child in the Philippines. How come those children don't have what I have? Now she had the tools to help find the answer. She started by counting. 
And so I learned how surveys were done to count people, to study their situations. Surveys are like long lists of personal questions, right? Right. Charita had surveys about how children worked, and she learned that most working children were on farms. And when they are working, how many hours they are working, is it affecting their education? These were important numbers, but she wanted to understand the problem the way that her parents had taught her, in person. And as I looked at the data and these numbers, I said, but I don't really know what the children are going through. I have to go to the Philippines. I have to see it. So did she go? She did for a year. I stayed at farms. I watched children on rice farms, sugarcane farms, coconut farms. I took motorcycle rides from the city center to one hours, two hours to go to the rural, rural areas and see children in their element and collect their stories. Jarita talked to the children and their parents. She put faces to the numbers in her surveys. And that brought the data alive to me. So did Charita figure out the answer to her original question of why other children had less than she had? Well, she kind of changed her question. She wanted to know more about what she could do about it. So what can we do to protect those children? Oh man, that's even tougher. What can we do and, and what does Charita do? Charita makes recommendations to people who can change things for children. They're called decision makers. Sometimes they're in the government, sometimes they're heads of companies. So like your parents, but for more people. I get to work with amazing researchers, social scientists who are making recommendations to governments and saying, here's how we can protect children. Jurita has worked on projects that support kids going to school, and she's also worked with the United Nations. And this year, she has very big goals. The year 2021 is the United Nations declared year for the International Year to Eliminate Child Labor. Wow, that's really exciting. Yes. Charita believes everyone can help children that they haven't even met, who live in faraway places and have lives we might have a hard time imagining. And so we do have a shared commitment as global citizens, global children, to protect the other world's children. Wow, that's a big commitment. It is. And that's how Charita finally answered the question she asked as a kid. She wanted to solve the problem that she saw on the streets. And she discovered that social science is one way to do that. Do you want to know how you can help children who have to work? There are many organizations that work to end child labor, and they could use your help. Charita recommends using your talents to help raise money to donate. She gave the example of her 10-year-old friends who baked marshmallows and macaroons. And I helped sell them for her, and we raised about $700. They donated it to an organization Charita believes in. What talents do you have that you could use to support a cause you believe in? Maybe it's baking or crafting or organizing a special event. Brainstorm some things you could do, then try it out. Even a little bit counts. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. 
Today, we're talking about the future of trash. The future of trash? In its future, does it just get, like, smellier? Not necessarily. Scientists are coming up with solutions that might surprise you. We'll find out how a worm could help reinvent recycling and what kids can do to make less trash for everyone. I can't wait to find out how, just after this. Trash is one of the biggest problems on our planet. And today, we'll get to meet two scientists who are working to tackle it in two very different ways. But before we get to the solutions, we have to talk about the size of the problem. Yeah, I mean, exactly how much trash do we have on this planet? Um, a lot. Here's one way to think about how much trash we make from one of our scientists. Lily Pollins is a social scientist who studies how we deal with trash. There's kind of this number that gets thrown around that in the United States, every single person makes four pounds of trash every day. Well, so do I like personally generate four pounds of trash every day? Every single person in the United States doesn't actually make four pounds of trash every day. But what that means is the amount of trash that we make in the whole country every day divided by the population works out to be four pounds per person per day. Okay, so that's like a lot of trash, and that's just the new trash. That doesn't count all the trash that my grandparents generated. Yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling to think about. It's just so vast that, like, your brain actually can't quite comprehend that amount. It's so, so much. Yeah, where does it go? So here in the U.S., we basically have three options. The first is a landfill. We put it in a landfill which means we collect the trash and we bury it in the ground under dirt where it gets kind of sealed in and lasts almost forever. The second option is to burn the trash. Then everything you burn turns into ash and that ash goes into a landfill. Okay, so it's just still in a landfill, but it's just smaller. Yeah, and burning it also releases toxic gases, which is not great. So you can bury it or you can burn it. Or you can recycle it. Materials like glass, paper, and certain plastics can be recycled. If the material that that thing is made of could be made into something else, then we call that recycling. All right, so there's three main options for what to do with your trash. And which one's the best? Let's ask our listeners, which option do you like best? Can you think of any other things that you can do with your garbage? Think about it, because we'll come back soon with our second scientist, who's working to improve one of those options with the help of mealworms. Kevin Solomon is a chemical and biomolecular engineer who hopes mealworms are part of the future of plastic recycling. It is kind of interesting, the power of the mealworm, and I think the power of biology. Mealworms, so like those little like segmented creatures you get at the pet shop to feed your lizard or your frog or your pet bug eater. <laughs> your pet bug eater? Yeah. <laughs> so cuddly. We love it. <laughs> yes, you may know them best as food for pets, but inside their tiny stomachs, they may hold the key to solving one of our most persistent garbage problems. 
a little known secret is that a lot of the things that we send for recycling aren't actually recycled. What? Yeah, unfortunately, it's true for reasons we'll get to later. But Kevin's not specifically a recycling guru. He uses biology or living things to take on the world's biggest challenges. As engineers, we're really problem solvers. And so we look at emerging crises and and think about how to creatively solve them. And so plastics has been an issue for years. I'd say using mealworms is definitely a creative solution to a crisis. Like, we're stuck in this room. The bomb's about to go off. How can we get out of this one? Mealworms. (laughs) I have so many questions, seriously. So, like, how does this work? Well, let's start at the beginning. Kevin's work is inspired by what we could think of as nature's recycling, like how animals eat food and turn it into energy. In other words, he studies my favorite subject, which is... Oh, come on. (laughs) Say it. Well, of course, it's poop. (laughs) My lab has expertise in studying the poops of animals and how they break things down. It's always about poop, isn't it? (laughs) It is, and it's the best. (laughs) But this isn't about the poop itself. It's the bacteria in the animal's guts that help break things down. What we've recognized is that biology is very good at breaking down these contaminated plastic waste materials. Okay, so mealworms can chomp away on plastic. But how is that better than our current recycling system? Traditional recycling uses high heat to break down plastic's chemical bonds. But this only works well for clean plastic. Your leftover food becomes part of the plastic if it's heated up. And that ruins the recycling process. So ultimately, even though you put it in the recycling bin, at some point, a decision's made and it goes to the landfill. Oh man, well that's not useful at all. I know. But Kevin thinks that this is a solvable problem. Because where chemistry fails, biology or life could succeed. These biological systems don't care about those impurities. It can work in spite of the fact that there's pizza sauce and other things on it. It would mean that these things would actually get recycled and that there would be less plastic in landfills. So actually recycling things sounds really great. And the small but mighty mealworm turns out to love a plastic buffet, eating the sauce from your leftovers and the plastic container it came in. So you're saying they're not very picky. Now, you might ask the question, why do they even degrade plastic at all? Yeah, I would definitely ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, mealworms are used to eating leaves that have a waxy coating on them. And so those waxy compounds on leaves that help make them waterproof, those look very similar to the chemicals in plastics. And so as far as a mealworm and the microbes in their gut are concerned, they're eating a leaf. Oh, wow. Yeah, mealworms really aren't that bright. You can fool them pretty easily. (laughs) They're literal bug babies, and they don't know better. So Kevin started working with another scientist named Mark Blenner. Mark studies how to take what the mealworms break down and make it into new plastics. There is evidence that the types of things that these plastics break down into are some of the same building blocks that Mark uses to make new types of compounds. And so that was a nice intersection for us. So they decided to run an experiment together. They put a bunch of mealworms into a container full of yummy plastics. They wanted to find the mealworms that love to chow down on this plasticky buffet. 
So just like you might like pizza or broccoli or other things, we give the, the, the mealworms and their, their microbes a buffet of different plastics and we see what are the things that they like to eat. Mealworms have all different types of microbes in their gut to digest their food, just like we do. Kevin and Mark were trying to identify which microbes were the ones really doing the work of digesting the plastic. Oh, I get it. So, like, some of the mealworm microbes are like, yum, plastics! And some are like, oh, no, there's nothing here I can eat. (laughs) Exactly. Those picky microbes kind of die off, and it makes it really easy to find the plastic-loving microbes that are surviving and thriving. So, essentially, the ones that like plastics will multiply or divide more quickly. Well, survival of the fittest. So is the plan to breed plastic-loving mealworms and then we all get to throw them in our plastic recycling to eat it up? (laughs) Nope. Actually, Kevin's vision is to remove the worms themselves from the whole process. Oh, that's great news because, like, the worms are disgusting. (laughs) They're no fun to handle. Yeah, I don't want to see those in our home. Kevin's idea is much cleaner. He wants to have mealworm microbe recycling plants with the microbes breaking down the plastic in big vats of liquid. The things that these microbes make to degrade these things in isolation. And so these processes are simple as opposed to worms where you probably have to feed them, add water, and then when they die, you have to pull them out. We don't have to worry about those kind of things. So as the microbes chomp away, so to speak, they would be breaking down the plastic into chemical compounds, which look a lot like the chemical compounds that make up oil. Oil? Like the stuff we get from the ground? Yeah, plastics are actually made from oil. So making something similar from biology would cut down on our fossil fuel use. Oh, so it's tackling both plastics and climate change. That's incredible. Yeah, so once Kevin and Mark find that perfect plastic-eating microbe, they'll hack its systems to have it go plastic in and oil out. In my lab and in Mark's lab, we also have technologies that allow us to engineer microbes so we can tell them, rather than making more of yourself, you should make a medicine or you should make a biofuel. Whoa, so they're essentially able to reprogram the microbe like a computer to say what it should make. Yeah, or like a little mini factory. And they'll be telling the microbes to make the building blocks of new plastics. So we'll never have to make brand new plastics and actually recycle our stuff into useful products again. That's amazing. So can it actually happen? Yes, in concept. Mark and Kevin have a ways to go on their mealworm microbes, but other types of plastic are further along in the system. So the science is at least established for certain types of plastics. Kevin told me that scientists understand how to recycle the type of plastic used for water bottles and food containers in this way. But plastic bags or styrofoam or other kinds of plastic need different microbes to do the job. These things are all chemically different, and they all require slightly different solutions. Well, that's really encouraging. It's like we don't have to just keep living with a recycling system that doesn't really work. Science can find solutions. Yeah, especially when scientists work hand-in-hand with nature or biology. 
you will be quite surprised at the chemistry and the power that biology has. It just needs to be harnessed in the right way to solve the problems that we actually currently have. Yeah, I'll say that's really surprising. Um, <laughs> but it's also so cool to think that we can solve problems with things like mealworm gut microbes. <laughs> like, who would have thought? It will take some time to upgrade our current recycling system to a microbe-based one, but I'm optimistic. Kevin says once we have this better solution to recycle the plastic that we have, we can think about cleaning up what's out there in the environment. So there's still kind of a lot of work to do. Yes, but next, Lily Pollins will tell us what we can do now to tackle our own trash problems. Okay, so we heard from Lily back in the beginning of the show. Telling us that we each make four pounds of trash per day. Right. And she says that the best thing we can do to cut down on how much trash we make is for cities and towns to just make less trash. So in my research, I go around and I look at specific cities and I look at what they've done over time and I see if it has helped them make less trash and how. So what helps cities make less trash? Well, one of the biggest things is to stop throwing leftover food into the regular trash bins and start composting it. Food waste has a lot of nutrients that we could put into the soil and help new plants and new food grow. But instead, we bury it in the landfill and then those nutrients kind of get sucked away from our soil. Yeah, we've been composting for a couple of years, first in our backyard, and then we had city composting programs. Yeah, and some cities do have composting programs, but definitely not all of them. And Lily says if your city doesn't, kids can make a difference here. Kids actually are really great advocates. And sometimes I think like kids kind of underestimate their power in this way. Lily has a few ideas that kids can advocate or ask for their cities to add compost to their waste management programs. You could ask your classmates to all write a letter to the mayor of the city and explain why the city needs better waste management. A letter writing campaign. Does that really work? Mayors love to get letters from kids about things that they care about. That's because kids' letters are cute and adult letters, oh, they're not. <laughs> Honestly, cuteness is power. Lily says kids' letters do make an impact. But if you want to go further, do it yourself. Start with your school. How's it dealing with waste? Can you help it do better? So schools can actually do things like compost themselves. You know, set up composting programs where kids can learn about this sort of science of how food goes from being, you know, like a melon rind to dirt. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, that's cool and educational. Plus, it helps your school make less trash, and you can put that in your letter to the mayor. I think of that as like a demonstration project where you actually show the city what's possible. So instead of just being like, you should do this, you can say, we did this, and you can too. Exactly. And Lily says kids have what it takes to make it happen. Kids are so good at that because like you're good organizers and you have good ideas and you can make things happen. And then adults like... They have to listen. Yeah, we really do have to listen to kids, because if we don't, there are problems. <laughs> yes, especially when they have legitimately good ideas for solving big problems facing our planet. Or, you know, when they ask for something like candy at a checkout line. 
We may not do it, but uh, we take the request into consideration. Now all we need to do is just take that energy and scale it up to the whole planet. Yeah, so (laughs) be persistent and want it so bad. (laughs) Do you want to help your city make less trash? First, do your research. With the help of an adult, see what options your city or town has available. I did this, and I was actually surprised that we had more options than I thought. You can figure out if you can use these trash and recycling programs more, or if you think your city needs your help, try taking Lily's advice. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're discovering the past and future of an invention that millions of people use every day. We're going to be like invention time travelers. Wait. Have we invented a time machine? (laughs) No, but we have an amazing guide who's played a huge part in revolutionizing this invention. So stay with us. Every invention starts with solving a problem. And here's a big problem to solve. 75 million people in the world have trouble walking. So listeners, think about it. If you could invent anything you wanted, what would you design and build to solve this problem? Because we're about to see how one inventor did it. Our guide to the invention of wheelchairs is a true pioneer named Rory Cooper. I'm Dr. Rory Cooper, and I'm the director of the Human Engineering Research Laboratories. Rory's journey of invention began when he was in a bike accident that changed his life. I was injured while riding a bicycle. I was sideswiped by a bus and then hit by a truck. It knocked me to the ground and ran over me. Wow, that's horrible, but he really sounds very calm about it. It happened a long time ago, so he's pretty used to telling the story. The accident left him paralyzed for life, unable to move his legs. Before, Rory had been a runner. He loved moving fast, so his first wheelchair was less than ideal. When I was injured, my wheelchair weighed 80 pounds, was made of steel, and was very similar to the wheelchair that Herb Everest and Harry Jennings had invented in 1932. But what, what kind of wheelchair is that? Worries talking about the kind of wheelchairs you see in hospitals or in airports. They're sort of one-size-fits-all. Okay, so like it folds up, but it's clunky, it's uncomfortable, and maybe it doesn't move that great? Well, when I've had to use one, I felt like I was in a really bad video game where you like don't have control <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> or like those times when the controller breaks. <laughs> exactly, and you're just kind of winging it. But people have been using this wheelchair for almost 90 years. Fortunately, I only used that wheelchair for about six weeks before it broke. As bad as this wheelchair is, it's the product of centuries of invention. Let's take a quick trip rolling down wheelchair memory lane. 
And the first wheelchair, believe it or not, was discovered on a Chinese sarcophagus. Stone inscriptions from both China and Greece suggest that chairs with wheels have been in use since the 6th century. These early wheelchairs looked kind of like chariots. So like a wheeled contraption drawn by some animals, maybe some horses, maybe some dogs, maybe weasels with little harnesses. That would be a dream. There were also a few notable European kings who had wheelchairs. Louis XIV used a wheelchair, actually, uh, which they had custom-made for him, obviously, and he didn't push himself because a king. I am the Sun King. Push me, s'il vous plaît. A very famous wheelchair came from Spain in the 1500s. King Felipe II had gout, which is a foot condition that makes walking really difficult. So he had a very plush chair with a cushioned arm and leg rest. Mas cojines, por favor. The wheelchair came more to the people with a big innovation in the British resort of Bath during the 1700s. Bath was a place where sick and disabled people would go to breathe fresh air. So uh, probably a lot of demand for wheelchairs and also like breezy shirts. <laughs> a man who lived there named John Dawson invented the bath chair. Wait. So you can take it into a bath? <laughs> no, it's named for the place, not the action of bathing. It kind of looks like a cross between a lawn chair and a sleigh. It had three wheels, two on the sides and one on the front. It had to be pushed by an attendant, but the rider could steer it with a long rod that was connected to the front wheel. Oh man, that must have been kind of annoying for the attendant. <laughs> Probably. These were available for rent, and to tie back to the royals, Queen Victoria had one made for her when she was older, around 1893. It was pulled by a pony. And maybe also some weasels. <laughs> you wish. So it was kind of like a mini carriage. Yeah, and it was really, really heavy. <laughs> kind of hard to get the pony inside the palace, too. I, there are lots of, like steep stairs and stuff like that. Really pony inaccessible. <laughs> <laughs> so when the design for Rory's 80-pound wheelchair first came out in the 1930s, it was revolutionary because it could fold. And that folds using what's called a cross brace. You lift the seat and the chair folds together. So compared to everything that came before, it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, you could fold it up, you could put it in a car, you could even push yourself. But like we said before, it's one size fit all, and Rory is not that one size. I'm, I'm six foot tall, but I'm not a very heavy guy. And so even the skinniest wheelchair, the narrowest wheelchair, wouldn't really fit me. And that's where Rory started thinking like an engineer. He had a problem, and he decided to solve it himself. There's a common saying... Necessity's the mother of invention. Meaning that if you really need something, and it doesn't exist yet, you have to invent it. Exactly. 
And fortunately, Rory's parents owned a machine shop. So he got in there and started tinkering with a specific idea in mind. I wanted the show to be very functional, but I also wanted people to see me and not just see a person in a wheelchair, but see a person who's using a wheelchair. So basically he's saying he wanted to be seen as the same person he was before his accident. Exactly, and his design had to reflect that. That might be a fight of a fine line, but to see the person first. This meant that the wheelchair needed to be smaller. The main thing I first started was, is making it fit me better. He started by rethinking the idea that a wheelchair needed to fold to fit into a car. He thought, what if you could take off the wheels instead? You could make a small compact frame and then you could take the wheels off easily and still store in the car. His breakthrough was using a small pin that could lock the wheels on and off the chair. That meant you could easily take it apart and put it back together. I was able to get it down to less than 30 pounds within about an 18-month, two-year period. Wow, that's really impressive. Rory called his invention a box frame, and he still uses something like it today. It was so successful that Rory moved out of his parents' machine shop, went to school to become an engineer, and then started his own laboratory to keep pushing wheelchair technology forward. Wow, that's a really incredible origin story. So now we have better wheelchairs. Like, we're done. No improving anymore. (laughs) Thanks, Rory. (laughs) Not quite. Invention is a process that never really stops. There's always more problems to solve and more powerful ways to solve them. Right now, Rory's at the head of another wheelchair revolution with robots. Matter of fact, we were the first ones to actually take and make mobile robots that people with disabilities could use for themselves for the first time. Uh, Mobile robots? That sounds pretty cool. I think I want one. But um, I need to know what they are first. (laughs) Mobile robots are basically robots you can ride on. Oh, like they're shaped like horses. (laughs) That's the only thing you could possibly ride on. What about a weasel? You can also ride a weasel if you're small. (laughs) Or if the weasel is very big. (laughs) A very big weasel. So what do they actually look like? In some ways, kind of like Mars rovers. That sounds awesome. I'd love to ride Curiosity. He looks cute. (laughs) Well, just like Mars rovers are built to navigate the surface of Mars, mobile robots are built to navigate Earth much better. But all six wheels can articulate, and they can move up and down to follow the terrain. Rory uses another trick in the robotics toolbox to do this. It's called artificial intelligence. What? So, like, intelligent robots? What, so intelligent robots are driving the wheelchair? Like, is that so you can ask them trivia questions? (laughs) I mean, you need something to do while you're journeying. (laughs) No, this kind of artificial intelligence is meant to predict what's coming up ahead. Something that wheelchair users are constantly having to think about. Now they can just sit back and relax. Exactly. Also, it's not just robots that can help improve wheelchairs. Right now, I'm most excited about researching alternative power sources. So why do wheelchairs need other kinds of power sources? Right now, power wheelchairs, which are the kind that can move on their own, have big batteries that you need to recharge. 
So Rory invented a chair that replaces those heavy batteries with air. And so we don't have to worry about batteries and replacement. It actually can go underwater. It can go underwater? He means it can get wet. And it was actually designed to be used at a water park in Texas. Kids there have already tried it out. Uh, all those kids were, it's transformed their lives, right? They're, they're now going to go with their brothers and sisters and their friends to a water park and play in the splash pads and shoot the uh, super soaker pirate ship guns and all of those sort of things. That's so awesome. We've come a long way from the non-bathing bath chair. Definitely. But we needed designs like the bath chair to get to where we are today. And there's still a lot farther to go. As Rory showed us, for every big problem, there's a lot of smaller problems to solve and a lot of different ways to solve them. So now that you know about the history of wheelchairs and how Rory has invented new technology, let's go back to the question at the beginning of the show. What would you design and build to solve the problem for people who can't walk? Think outside the box or outside the wheels. Then draw a picture of your design and ask a friend, an adult, or even a sibling to ask questions about how it might work in the real world. Then go back and refine or revise your design. In fact, form your very own Tumble Robotics team. Remember, scientists rarely work alone. They love working on ideas together. Well, that just about does it for this episode bundle. Now that you've listened to three different ways that scientists made a difference, it's your turn. How can you make a difference in your community? Even something that seems small to you can make a big, positive change in someone else's life. Go for it! Thanks so much to Charita Castro, Rory Cooper, Kevin Solomon, and Lily Pollins for sharing their work with us for these episodes. Sarah Robertson-Lentz is Tumble's editor, and Lindsay Patterson wrote and produced these episodes. Elliot Hijaj is Tumble's production assistant, and he produced this road trip pack. Eric Kuhn and Gary Calhoun-James are our engineers. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I created all the music and sound design that you heard in these episodes. After the holidays, we'll be back with more new episodes, so join us then for more stories of science discovery. you're still here thanks so much for listening to that road trip special thanksgiving episode and now that it's over i've got some birthday shout outs to give to our supporters on patreon judah graff happy belated birthday on september 28th dad loves you and your passion for science luca mom and dad love your curious questions and thoughtful ideas and happy birthday on november 25th gray mom and dad love you so much and they can't wait to see what you'll explore and engineer this year and me neither Happy 6th birthday on November 25th. Miles, happy birthday on November 26th. Mommy and Daddy love you so much. Happy birthday on November 27th to Vivian and Easton. Keep asking questions, curious bat, from Mama, Daddy, and Kai. Happy birthday to Nehemiah on November 27th as well. Danny Robeson, happy birthday on November 28th. And thank you to Mr. Jordan for sharing Tumble with your class and helping Danny listen at school. Bear, mommy and daddy, love you, cheeky ferret, and happy birthday on November 29th. 
Hayden, Mom, Dad, Kale, and Bob love you, and happy birthday on November 29th. Maxwell Mazzocco, happy November 29th birthday from your little brother Mitchell. Diego, Mom and Dad are so proud of you and love you so much. Keep asking wonderful questions. They can't wait to see where they'll take you. Have a great birthday on December 4th. Miranda, science rules. Happy birthday on December 5th. Vanessa, happy birthday on December 6th from Mom, Dad, and Felix. Porter Jans, keep experimenting and learning. Mom and Dad love you. Mom and Dad love you. Happy birthday on December 7th. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout-out of your own like these fine folks, simply support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast.